Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't yet joined our wonderful Flywheel Nation community, go to flywheelnation.com and join in the podcast conversations. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. The enemy of great work is good work, right? And many of us live in fear of doing something because what we believe is there's a right way and a wrong way. Like it either will work or it will fail or it will it will succeed or it won't. And my experience has been that neither of those are true. Like everything like marginally succeeds. And if you can reprogram your thinking going into something that allows you to create levels of success, allows you to add more context. And what I'm doing here again with these questions is inserting increased curiosity that creates a gray space and a gray space becomes a play space. It allows failure to exist. And when failure can exist, success can flourish. Welcome back. I hope you've had an absolutely awesome week so far. Now, if you haven't heard my recent conversations with the author of No Plan B, Heather Forkelson, and with marketing strategist and podcaster Bethany Meadows, then do go check them out but only after you've listened to today's conversation. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Phil M. Jones. He's a serial entrepreneur, a business growth expert, and best-selling author of Exactly What to Say, Exactly How to Sell, and Exactly Where to Start. Phil started his first business, a car washing business, when he was 14 years old, and he hasn't looked back since. After years of being one of the most in-demand young sales leaders in the UK, including being awarded the British Excellence in Sales and Marketing Award, Phil decided to dedicate his future to helping other people succeed by taking everything he had learnt and created a one-day workshop in which he trained thousands of people all about leadership, sales and business growth. Phil's unique wisdom of using certain word choices in teaching his audiences on exactly what to say to impact other people and drive outcomes made him one of the most practical and in-demand business speakers today. So you're in for a treat here. In our conversation today, Phil talked to me about understanding the context of conversations and being strategically curious. He talked about and explained the relentless quest for better. And he explained what the best way is to prepare for exactly what to say before you engage in the conversation. Without further ado, then let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Phil M. Jones. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast today from New York in the USA, Phil M. Jones, who's an international business speaker and also author of the books Exactly What to Say, Exactly How to Sell, and Exactly Where to Start. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Phil. It's a real privilege to have you as my guest. Hey, thank you for inviting me on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, Ruben Kenya, who was our guest on episode 479 of the Innova Buzz podcast, suggested we have a conversation with you, Phil. Ruben also had you on his show and had a wonderful conversation. So big hello to Ruben. Thanks, Ruben, for being able to uh, connect us. I appreciate it. Now, you believe with passion that the answers to increased success in every area of life is to ask better questions. And I, I'm fascinated by that in terms of the whole idea of asking good questions and focusing on the quality of conversations and also the difference between success and failure 
you say is is often knowing exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to make more conversations count. So as someone that loves to have value-filled conversations on this podcast, I'm really looking forward to digging into that. Now, before we do that, what's the difference you're making in the world today? Maybe I've captured it there a little bit in the snapshot. Um, you know, I'd like to think that, that other people do a better job of explaining the difference that any one individual makes than the, than the difference, well, than your explanation like yourself. But I, I think if anything, I spend the bulk of my time helping people that need to achieve commercial outcomes, i.e. salespeople, but people that don't see themselves as salespeople get better commercial outcomes in many areas of their life. And much of that comes down to critical conversations. So my work is involved in increasing their competence to therefore then go on to increase their confidence in many of those life's critical conversations. And I'd like to think that in the two million plus people I've trained around the world and the uh, gazillions of books, etc., that have found themselves to all the corners, that somewhere in that, that we've maybe made an impact of, of helping people raise their game when it comes to certainly persuasive and influential conversations to come out on top. Mm. Fascinating. Um, a lot of your work is around having influence, just changing words and changing the way we say words in a way that has more influence. And you also talk about owning the conversation or taking the power position in the conversation. One of the things I'm curious about, because I love, I love the, I've read exactly what to say, I've read exactly how to sell, and I love the whole concept, and certainly if you look into the ideas in neuroscience, there's a lot of um, principles based in neuroscience that support the work that you do and, and the ideas in your books. One of the things that I'm curious about, and I'd love to get your take on this, is the idea of doing this with integrity, doing this with... Um, mm -hmm coming from the point of view of from, from a servant's heart and from the point of view of a win-win for all participants in that conversation. If, you know, you do use the word, I think at some point you do use the word um, manipulate somewhere and I, I kind of, that, that stuck in my throat a little bit, I must say, but it, you, you certainly highlight that this is about influence, this is about serving um, the other person in the conversation, but at the same time, you do talk about taking the power position by um, taking back, yeah, taking back the power position when things go off the rails somewhat. So, tell me a little bit about your philosophy on how how to use this with integrity. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and I think you're using the most crucial word there is that word in integrity and. and the difference between influence and manipulation is actually entirely based in integrity. And I think it was either Uncle Ben or Peter Parker that once said, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. The exact same thing is true with our ability to be able to master skills for influence. Like you can use them to achieve a great outcome and you can use them to be able to get people to, to believe a lie. Like Both those circumstances are, are true the integrity of what exists in the other person is something I can't control. What I do believe, though, is that the more people you empower to have confidence in, in steering conversations, then the more good people you have in the world holding power to be able to actually influence good conversations. Because many of these skills have actually been seen as a dark art and often been taught or refined or utilized in areas where actually the outcome was mm. for the benefit of one or some as opposed to the benefit of many. So I can't, I, I can't control somebody else's uh, intent. But I do think what is even more important today, Jürgen, is, is the kind of world that we live in. We live in a world today where actually there is such a heightened level of transparency. If what you're doing is you're doing things that are resulting in you winning today, but then being found out as a crook in a week, a month, a year, etc., that won't run you too far. Hmm. But if what you're doing is you're doing things that are going to allow you to build a positive reputation over time, then the market decides, right? The market decides in everything. There's a bigger point that I wanted to put onto this from, from the integrity point of view is, is about how you choose to play this game. Are you playing the long game? Are you playing the short game? And are you brave enough to be able to say that actually most people are looking to be led? 
And I think that's a fact. I think most people in any form of difficult scenario are looking for somebody to step into the role of leader and lead the dance towards a better place. And whether that is, um, you know, I've got a health condition and I'm looking for a medical advisor to be able to direct me towards what I should or shouldn't do, should or shouldn't eat, should or shouldn't take in terms of medication, or whether that's you're walking into a car dealership and you're looking for the right vehicle for your family, or whether that's you're speaking to an insurance provider, or whether you're working with a client and you're looking to be able to diagnose the right solution for their their, their new software system. What people are looking for is to be led. And, and the opposite of influence is abdication. Mm. So if what you're doing is you're abdicating from, from actually inserting yourself to responsibly steer somebody through the decision-making process, you are not helpful. So influence with integrity is actually one of the most helpful skills that any human being can have on the planet. You just have to be emotionally aware enough of the fact that this is a powerful position and there is responsibility that comes with it. And you best be prepared to wake up a month, a year, three years after the thing you helped influence somebody do with the confidence or at least the belief that they will still feel good about it. Doesn't mean they always will still feel good about it because some people change their mind and some people's motivations change and some people's priorities change. But at least you have to believe with 100% certainty that the thing that you're steering somebody towards doing is the right thing for them. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that last sentence really is is the key for me in that you really have to believe that um, and I like the analogy with great power comes great responsibility. Right. But, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that comes out of all the NLP studies I've done is that there's a way to have conversations where usually it's a, you talked about it's a dance and there they talk about, you know, you're always doing this, um, three step process of pace, pace, lead. So you're having a conversation with somebody, you're kind of pacing them, pacing the conversation. And and then you step into leadership, but you always kind of back off again to pacing, and it's really about being on the same page or um, being in in rapport with that person. Right, and and I use the dance metaphor on purpose because I think people are looking to lead that dance. Yet most people don't like dancing, or at least they say they don't <laughs> until they're on the dance floor, right? And somebody is on the dance floor with them, making them look better, helping them enjoy themselves more then that is an experience that both people tend to benefit from. Yet still there's a resistance at the front of this for the majority that says, I don't want to play this game right now. Hmm. All right. Well, one of the the other questions that came up in in reading through your book, and I was reflecting on um, being an introvert myself at, I find it really hard to start conversations, or I used to find it really hard to start conversations. I mean, obviously, I've had quite a lot of them on this podcast, and that's helped me. So there's there's a, a, the idea of practice, and you get better. Um, but what what techniques do you recommend for somebody that that is in that situation of I find it really hard to start a conversation, particularly if you don't know anything about the other person? Let's say you meet um, in an elevator. And there's another person there that starts to actually starts a conversation. How do you kind of take a role of, okay, I'm going to carry this conversation. I'm going to just practice a conversation with no expectation of the outcome other than, you know, when you leave that elevator, both of you feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking before we actually hit record today about, um, a scenario that happened in Australia recently that involved a sports game by the game of tennis, right? So we were talking about that situation. And I think entering into these conversations are much like a game of tennis before the game of tennis starts to keep score. So that gentle rally of the knock-up of, you know, ball over the net, ball over the net, ball over the net, ball over the net. No one's trying to win the point. Nobody's trying to actually beat the other person. The only job is to be able to gently put the ball back so the other person can feel out the court, the racket, the weather, the density, etc. That's where these early small talk conversations are actually delivered best, is where you allow this to me, to you, to me, to you, to me, to you game. The mistake that many people make is that they hold too much of the court. So what they do is they keep the ball for too long. <laughs> and that's where, um, or they give it back too quick. Hmm. 
what you need to be able to do is to make it joyful in each direction. So when you say you don't know anything about the other person, you always know something about the other person. Always. Mm. And it's the safest place to start. Like if you're in an elevator, well, how did you get there? Where are you heading? Are all simple questions that can allow you to be able to just build some context into their world. So where are you heading? I'm heading up to the 12th floor. What's happening up on the 12th floor? Well, I work there. Okay, what do you do for work? You see how that then plays out. But you then have to leave a beat for them to say, well, how about you? What are you doing here? Hmm. Because otherwise what happens is it naturally becomes an interrogation. Yeah. And we're told that we should peel back the layer, peel back the layer, peel back the layer. But what happens is we start to feel naked if somebody peels back too many layers. Is that what happens is, is we've given you, well, I work here and this is what I do for a living and this is where I live and I'm married and I've got four kids and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I know nothing about you. Now I'm scared. Hmm. Who are you to me? I don't know whether you're the best friend of my boss. I don't know whether you're my new boss. I don't know whether you're like a, a famous person. I don't know whether you're nobody. Like, so you need this context again. And that's why you have to not over answer. Just provide a space for somebody else to fill it with air. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, the tennis analogy is a really good analogy. I think there is like if somebody's saying, well, I, this is what I do. It's always good then to give back something and say, well, oh, that's interesting. I, I, I work in a different space. So I've always been curious about that. That's it. And instead of jumping straight to the comparison, mm. when they say, you know, I work in finance and you say, well, I work in IT, we just hit a dead end. Mm. You'd be better when they say, well, I work in finance. You say, oh, kind of what, what, what kind of finance? Like, like peel back two, three layers to get a little bit more context then leave the beat for them to be able to say, well, what about you? What do you do for work? Hmm. What is funny that you asked is I work in podcasting. I work in IT. I work in system software, etc. And now what you've got is common ground because they've given you enough context about their world. You've given them enough context about yours. And, and, and what you're really looking to do in small, small talk is to be strategically curious to reach a point of context. Because once you understand the other person's context, you get closer to empathy. Because then you start to be able to see the world through their eyes. Now, the context in the elevator might be, I'm on my way up for an interview and I'm nervous as hell right now. Hmm. That's a different small talk conversation than I just popped out to get my lunch and do this every single day. Hmm. Different small talk conversation, right? So what your goal is, is to be able to understand their context. And that's what you're questioning towards. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. And... You, you mentioned strategically curious, so explain that a little bit more. Um, whenever you meet somebody for the very first time, the, the, the natural reaction is you're feeling that you're being judged. So you become a little more fearful because what you're worrying is, is who are you to them? Hmm. The quickest way you can get an answer to that is to find out who are they to you. So your strategic curiosity should be to get towards finding the answer to that question in the quickest period of time. Because now all of a sudden, we've learned how high stakes this conversation is. Hmm. And once you know how high stakes they are, even if the stakes are higher than you thought they could be, you still end up with an increased level of confidence because you now understand how high the stakes are. Yeah. So actually, certainty is what gets you to confidence in conversation. And the only thing that gets you to certainty is curiosity, which is strangely ironic. <laughs> curiosity gets you to certainty. Well, how does that work out? Um, and it stops you being overbearing. It helps you actually, it helps you bring everything into four dimensions. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting that you mentioned the overbearing because that's, that's something that I often have found myself in situations where the other person is very talkative um, like the classic is when you're on an on a flight in an aircraft with two seats and you end up next yep. to somebody that, that is really keen to share their life story and and i always feel a lot of pressure there and feel like oh, you've been in those alone. nine and a half hour therapy sessions too. yeah 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 <laughs> just leave me alone i want to read my book or whatever movie sleep yeah whatever. yeah hmm. I mean, you can close the door on those conversations pretty easily. Well, I've got a strategy, but let's hear yours. <laughs> I want to hear yours first. Teach me something new, Yogan. All right. Well, um, I was 
I used to travel to Korea a lot. And the first, the very first trip I had to Korea, I arrived on a Sunday evening because I traveled all day Sunday from Australia, uh, got into the hotel late in the evening, hit the elevator, and I thought, what is that awful smell? Anyway, I um, got to my room, went to bed, didn't think much of it after that until lunchtime the next day when um, our local uh, staff in the office that I was working with said, let's go out to lunch. Would you like to go try a Korean restaurant? I said, of course, I'm in Korea. So we went to a Korean restaurant and the first thing they did in the restaurant was put this bowl, like a cereal bowl, full of raw garlic cloves on the table. And all the people started, all the Koreans started to just chew, or not chew, but eat these garlic cloves raw. And it dawned on me, oh, okay, that's that's what the elevator smell was. So I guess I'm here a week. The only way I'm going to survive this is I've got to join in. So I started eating the garlic cloves. A week later, I'm on the flight home. I sit in my seat and lo and behold, next to me is this guy that wants to tell me his life story. And he went for about five minutes without taking a breath. And then when he took a breath, I said something and must have hit him with this blast of garlic air and, and he just shut down and <laughs> kind of <laughs> closed off because he didn't want me to open my mouth anymore. I mean, it works, right? I mean, yeah, we've got a strategy right. here that works. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, the lesson to every every reader right now is if there's somebody you don't want to talk to, make your breath stink. Yeah. <laughs> got it, got it. Uh, no, it's just a little fun. I think a great story. Thank you for sharing. And, and alternatively is you bring a conversation to a close just by showing immense gratitude. And is the politest way that you can really do it is just, you know, thank them so much for what they've shared and then move the question, move the conversation really quickly on. So thank you so much for everything you've shared. It's been a pleasure to meet you and learn a little bit more about you. And then just move straight towards the thing that you are focused on being able to do next. It was really important for me to get some quiet time on this flight right now. So I'm going to, uh, Gonna close, close my eyes for a second. Is I've got some work that I need to be able to get delivered during this flight, so I'm going to reach for my laptop. But you've got to do this immense gratitude, nice compliment, hmm. and then move the conversation very quickly onto. And here's what I've got to do next. But what it does is it it allows the other person to save face. It leaves a little of grace. It says the exchange was valuable. The exchange has been useful. The exchange did add value into your life, but the exchange is now over for now. Hmm. And it allows you just to be able to politely move on. And if you're really in trouble, then um, make the excuse to use the restroom. The easiest way to get out of a conversation anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's easier for guys than girls because sometimes with women, they might want to go with each other. But um, that's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I like the... You have a whole lot of suggestions in in exactly what to say in particular around allowing the other person to save face when it could be a difficult conversation, when you're kind of confronting them. For example, um, if there was something that the other person agreed to do and you suspect that they haven't done it, so rather than just asking, you know, have you done that? And they're all embarrassed and have to say no. Um, your Your approach is, I'm guessing you haven't got around to that, which kind of, lets them off the hook a little bit and yeah. and if they have got around to it then then of course they feel like a hero correct that they feel like they outperformed your expectation of them and if they haven't got around to it is you've left enough space in it for them to actually be able to create both their apology and their next plan mm. oh i haven't got around to it yet i'll get it done by the weekend mm. they naturally feel obligated whereas if you come at them with the have you what you get is the excuse as to why they haven't which doesn't actually progress the outcome. You just get a period where the here's why it's not done. And now you feel like more of a nag, more of a push to actually be able to keep looking for an update on this. Hmm. All right. Um, I've just started reading exactly where to start. Um, I'm not sure which chapter I'm up to, but I was uh, really intrigued. The letter to the future self and those six powerful questions um, since that's the latest book, I think, um, tell us a little bit more about those two things. Well, I wrote exactly where to start because of the number of particularly 
independent individuals that were looking to be able to lean forward with a business idea, looking to be able to start something for themselves, looking to be able to move from a corporate role into being able to become more entrepreneurial. And, and they're often asking me, saying, well, where do I start? What do I do first? And that's where the whole premise of exactly where to start came from, was a, a little bit of a, a mindset book that just gets you to the start. There are a lot of books in the world that are designed to say, well, once your business is up and running, how do you make it better? Hmm. But there are very few books that say, how do you get from I've got a good idea to actually I've got a, a viable operation, not making you gazillions of dollars, but you've actually, you know, in business, you've completed on project, you've got something. And that's what that book's about. The, the, the letter to self piece is a tactic I've used for years to create ultimate accountability is we're all good at talking about the thing we nearly did, the thing we're going to do, the thing we plan to do. And some of us have coaches that then hold us to account on that, that maybe check in with us, that then maybe you know provide deadlines around that and force us to be able to actually move forward and progress that idea. Many of us don't. Many of us don't have the means to, we don't have the network to, we just don't have that level of accountability in our lives. So a letter to self is that the day you decide you're going to do something, and when you're going to have that thing done by, you write a letter to self that puts you into the position of this is being done by a certain point in time in the future. What you then do is you give that letter to somebody you trust and you ask them to be able to put it back in the mailbox in and around that time. So what you've now done is you've just planted this piece of accountability long out into your future that um, you know is coming back. And you know you're going to have to look at that letter one day. You're going to know the fact that you penned it, you signed it, you committed to the promise in that letter yourself, and you're going to have to either read it and um, deal with the disappointment of the fact that you didn't do the work or read it with glowing praise of the fact that you did the work that you knew you were capable of to be able to move your own life forward. So it's a, it, it's a self-regulating um, accountability tool. And what it does is it raises the stakes on, on anybody's promises that they're going to make. Even putting pen to paper and signing a contract, what you're really doing is, is signing a contract to yourself. This matters enough. And when we've worked with people in workshops in that environment, it's quite often when they've got to do the letter themselves, is they've given up on the idea straight away because they realize they didn't even want it that much. Yeah. And then they've rewritten an alternative idea by comparison. Just because of that, that sort of uplifted social accountability. And then much of the questions that exist in exactly where to start are all designed to, to help you rethink about what success looks like, to be able to rethink about what will work, what won't work, and how that then talks to yourself. Because the enemy of, of good work, the enemy of great work is good work, right? And many of us live in fear of doing something because what we believe is there's a right way and a wrong way. Like it either will work or it will fail or it will... Uh, it will succeed or it won't. And my experience has been that neither of those are true. Like everything like marginally succeeds. And, and if you can reprogram your thinking going into something that allows you to create levels of success, allows you to add more context. And what I'm doing here again with these questions is inserting increased curiosity that creates a gray space and a gray space becomes a play space that allows um it allows failure to exist and when failure can exist success can flourish yeah yeah that's fascinating and um i mean the idea of avoiding failure is is something that i think holds a lot of entrepreneurs back and and reframing failure as um, its feedback its data um it's it's yeah that experiment didn't turn out as I thought. Here's the data. What's the next experiment? Which is the curiosity. And I like that. You know, I work with entrepreneurs all around the world, and and one of the questions I often ask in in workshop environments is like, what is the difference between a failure and a mistake? Because I think those two things get interchanged when actually they're demonstrably different things. Like a mistake is doing something you knew how to do wrong. Like we should definitely avoid mistakes. Yep. And yes, we learn from mistakes, but what we learn from mistakes, we should have been better prepared. We should have done the work before the work. We should have actually followed the protocol we know we should have done. That's what you learn from mistakes. Failure is not the same. Failure is trying something you've never tried before and getting a result that is different to the one that you hoped for. 
that's how any of us have learned to do anything. Hmm. It's believed that something was possible. We're trying it, getting a result that was different to what we hoped for. And, and you learn from failure differently. It brings data in the same way that you've just said there a second ago. It gives us this data. But what we live in fear of as leaders is we believe there's a right way to do things. I can ask audiences anywhere that if you wanted to do good at something, you wanted to do better at something, or you wanted to do your best at something, which one would you pick? And everywhere I ask that question, everybody says, I want to do my best. Hmm. Then you've got organizations around the world saying, what's the best practice for blank? What's the best practice for blank? What's the best practice for blank? And when we insert this word best, what we do is we create a hypothetical ceiling. We say that's hmm. as good as it can be, and you're going to spend your life looking up at that best, and it's going to suppress your own performance. And there's been points in our life where we actually use the word best for its real reason. And when you consider these points in time, you understand what it really means. See, how many times, Jürgen, have you ever said to somebody, like, don't worry, you were trying your best. And you know internally that they weren't. Hmm. Or you've even used it as an excuse yourself, like, I was trying yeah, my yeah. best. You knew that you had more to give. the best I could. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's Whereas it's inside, you're like, eh, you didn't, did you? Like, like is, is you know that there is some real talk that is happening internally mm. about all the shoulda, woulda, couldas, right? So what we do is we learn to not trust the word best. Like, it doesn't mean in the real world what it's supposed to mean in the dictionary. Mm. It actually suppresses performance or it's used as an excuse. So when you say, I tried my best, you said, I couldn't do any more than that. Yeah. When the truth is, you could. When you shift focus from best to better, you actually create a play space that allows you to surpass your current best. And that's mm. much of the work that we talk about in exactly where to start is, is how do you focus on better? How do you focus on better? How do you focus on better? And I have a little process or framework that listeners might find useful for this. And it's in debrief. So anytime you've ever done anything that is important, the conversation you have with yourself after that action is probably even more important than the action itself in that debrief phase. And when we've done anything important, our natural behavior is to do one of two things, is either to focus on the negatives, all the things that we didn't do well enough, or to get a little bit too excited about all the things that we did so well and over-embellish those <laughs> because of the fact that our egos are, are, are needing of fuel on certain occasions. <laughs> we go one way or the other, right? It's like all the good news or all the bad news. Like, I was awesome, or that was terrible. Um, and none of that's helpful. In debrief, one of the simplest things that you can do that creates rapid progress is to write two lists. The first list you write is a list of what I call my LBs. And LB stands for like best. What did I like best about how this worked out? What did I like best about how I showed up today? What did I like best about the results that we achieved? And when you talk in terms of like best, what you're doing is you're cementing positive habits and behaviors. Hmm. Or starting to talk to yourself with kindness to say that there was good news here, but like, like, like let's tether it enough to be factual, accurate, and kind. What did I like best about what I did today? And then only once you finish the like best list do you jump to the second list, which is a list of NTs, and NT stands for next time. What would I do differently next time? Now this becomes an engaging and empowering forward thinking list of attributes that you can change for growth in a future scenario, which is way more empowering than what did I do right and what did I do wrong that cements it as a snapshot in time. What I like best is reinforcing positive behavior. Hmm. What would I do next time is empowering you to be able to actually improve in the future. So I think some of that self-talk is really important. And we, we touch on, on, on parts of that and exactly where to start. And I, and I introduce a process called the four R's, which is where I took all these and NTs from, which is about how you, how you actually take time to, reflect, review, refine, refocus uh, in order to be able to actually move from here's where I am now and, and I want to level up and go again and again and again and have to reinvent. Mm. Mm. That's fascinating. I love that debrief process and it kind of reminds me that you know, we always find ourselves either in this, um, like you said, in this kind of artificial glow of, well, there's, there's some things I was really excited about because they really worked well and you forget about some of the other things that you could perhaps do better next time. Um, or we go the other extreme and beat up on ourselves and say, 
oh, I should have done this better or I should have done that better and forget about all the things that actually worked well. And you literally forget about some of the things that actually work well. So what you end up doing is getting worse. Yeah, yeah that's right. All right. Um, so, yeah, thanks for giving us a bit of a, a highlight reel of um, exactly where to start. And I really look forward to finishing that book or getting deeper into it and going through it. One of the One of the things we talked about is creating intent and scenarios where everybody wins and I I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about my podcast and because you talk about asking powerful questions and reframing conversations in a way that's questions and one of the things that I'm really keen about on on this podcast is not to have it as a question and answer session but to have it as a meaningful conversation that adds value to the audience, of course, but also adds value to both you as the guest and me as the host. How can some of the principles that you talk about in exactly what to say and exactly where to start in particular and exactly how to sell be applied to those kind of situations in podcasting conversations? Well, how about we, we, we take these stakeholders one at a time and, and give some thought to each of them? So where do you want to start? You want to start with how you can ask better questions that support you as the host, me as the guest, or the audience member at home. Let's start with the audience member. That was a great choice. That was a great <laughs> choice. And I think in that is to ask questions that they carry forward past the interview, questions that they can carry into the home, questions that they can carry into the workplace, and then precise actions or steps that they can take that allow this conversation to live on past the minute they press pause or stop. That's how you can add a lot more value towards a listener at home. Example of which would be is, so why don't you right now listening at home think about many of the critical conversations that you face in your work? Now, these might be points where you get friction back from the other person at a point of introducing your product, your service, your ideas and that you face objection or resistance as to why they wouldn't move forward, that would be a critical conversation. Hmm. Other critical conversations would be conversations you have on repeat. Could be inbound phone call, response to a lead. It could be how you set up for a meeting. It could be the video you record on repeat. That would be a critical conversation. And the other critical conversations are the ones that you are having over the next seven days. They're already scheduled. They're in your diary. You're going to be having them. The worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. Hmm. So do some work to think about your critical conversations and perhaps even think to yourself right now, what are the three most critical conversations with one in each of those areas that can have the biggest impact on your life if you could add efficacy to each one of those? Hmm. So you see how that's a rhetorical series of questions with advice in it that isn't a tell that is a linger of, I guess I need to do some more thinking on that. And it's hard to not think about it. Because mm. right now, you're also thinking about what are some of your critical conversations, right? You That's can't right. help. Yeah, absolutely, that yeah. So the power of rhetorical questions in conversations is huge if you want your audience to be able to get more from it. Mm. Let's jump to you next. How do you get more from it? Well, what mm. do you want people to do as a result of listening to your show? Well, I'd love them to take some action away that, that benefits them, which you've just highlighted one way to do that. Um, I'd also love them to check out some of the other conversations I've had on the podcast because each of them in their own right are valuable. And I'm guessing that some of my listeners don't listen to every episode. Some of my listeners to this episode might be new listeners. And um, so I'd certainly like them to check out all the other conversations that I've had and even the other work, though the other material that I've published that they might find of interest. Which is great, right? But that's like a massive task. That Mm. sounds interesting to me, and I'd like to do that one day. One day is someday. Someday never appears, right? For the masses. Even if I love your show, I love what it's about, etc. It's like, that's a good idea, and I'm never going to do it. Whereas what you can do by alternative is you can throw down the challenge. Human beings love challenge. (laughs) If you label it a challenge, then all of a sudden it's like there's a challenge. So if you've listened to this part of the show, I've got a challenge for you. What I'd love you to do is one of two things. 
is if you've loved this conversation, think it'd be useful to one other person, be brave enough to share this conversation with that one other person. Hmm. See the focus on that? Yeah, yeah. Now, more importantly, if you've enjoyed this conversation, my guess is in the 505 other episodes that have existed of this show up until right now, there's at least one in there that is probably even more valuable than this one. So either pick your favorite number or take a 30-second glance through the past episodes and between now and next episode that I release, see if you can listen to one more and then shoot me a note on Twitter, Instagram, etc. Pick one Hmm. about which episode you picked and why and what your biggest takeaway was. And you can go as far back as 2010, or you can go as far back as 2017, etc. Now I've got a challenge. Which mm. one am I going to pick? And now I've got a chance to actually be able to engage with the host on Jürgen. I decided on this one. And you see what you've done? We've created the 2 plus 2 equals 5. Yeah. But because there was more precision in it. What could people do for me as a guest mm. is um, I like making new friends. I like meeting new people. That's why I come on to podcast shows. And I've already succeeded at that because we've had a conversation today. And therefore, I now have a greater level of understanding and awareness and relationship and rapport with you, sir. So there's already one win that exists in my world is that we've dropped some breadcrumbs out there in reputation. And many of those then then get handed on to others. And that's how people grow their reach within the world. But I think... The second big reason that I come on shows is my little book, Exactly What to Say, has now reached over a million people around the world. I've written eight best-selling books, but this one is like like gangbuster above and beyond the others. Hmm. And um, it's probably my most passionate piece of work, too. And I'm here because I'd like more people not to read it, but to consume it and then use it, feel more empowered about how they can use language so if there's something that, that, that this is more useful from, is if you meet somebody and you like what they're about on the show, buy a piece of their work. Or go find them on their social channel and check in and say, I heard what you're about and I liked it. Just just go nudge them and, 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 and tell them that it was impactful, it was useful, it was worthwhile. And I think those are the biggest things that you can encourage people to do in taking action from a guest point of view is to continue the conversation with the guest after the episode either from investing in a part of their body of work or learning a little bit more and then asking a follow-up question in an alternative platform like a social channel Hmm. yeah love it great recommendations and i will i've written down the timestamp for this so that i can come back and revisit that and make sure i pay more attention all right. And what you're looking for is precision of action in that. Yeah, precision of action. That's that's a key message. And I like the idea of the challenge because that really focuses people and, oh, I'm up for a challenge and, and yeah. give them the precision. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Phil. This has been fabulous. I think it's a good point now, though, to move on to the buzz. That's These are our scripted questions, five questions that I ask of every guest. It's um, uh, the innovation round. And the idea is that here... You give us some tips, some really concise, actionable tips that will inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. So there's the challenge for the listener. Right, you ready? I'm ready. What's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? Um, Just to live a life on the relentless quest for better and understand that there is always a better way to do just about everything and stay focused on trying to find it. Mm, yeah, I love it. And I love the idea um, of really keeping it as better rather than best because, as you say, best is kind of like a glass ceiling. Yeah. Hmm. All right, the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Surround myself with people who are way more talented <laughs> than, than I am. Um, and I think adding to that, though, is to be brave enough to to add diversity to my work that is challenging and nerve-wracking and mm. by what i mean is you know i grew up with a sales training business in this space but now the bulk of my work has me working in areas that i had no previous um experience in whether that is you know government whether it is securities whether it is healthcare, whether it is in product development whether it's in SaaS, like all areas of financial services that i've had little to no experience but this breadth of experience is actually led to confidence in in so many areas of material because you've seen its universal application 
but also it's allowed me to think about things from completely different angles that I would have never had empathy for in the past. Mm. And I think those new lenses, um, and if you haven't had him on the show, grab Stephen Shapiro. He's one of the smartest people around innovation. Uh, he wrote a book called 24 Lenses or 26 Lenses. Or something. And, and I, I think anything you can do to expand the lens that you're looking at a scenario from just naturally encourages you to become more innovative because it gives you a new vantage point and therefore you see the problem differently and you see solutions differently too mm. yeah yeah there's lots in that um uh, one of the things that struck me there you mentioned healthcare and thinking to your work on you know using words and and reframing or or selecting better words to have more impact uh, the healthcare industry particularly doctors I and mean, that's um, the yep. bedside manner is is an ongoing joke. Uh, they probably never could use you there, but there are some private medical providers that that are asking for that help on, on repeat right now, and, yeah. and um, are actually becoming aware in themselves that they are damaging their reputation from not having that skills. Hmm. Wonderful. All right, uh, favorite resource of yours that you use most often? Sadly, it's probably my iPhone. I wish that wasn't <laughs> the answer. Um, but it, but it, it probably is that. And if not that, it's probably, probably my AirPods that add efficiency via travel in being able to stay abreast of things with a, with a little note in your ear, um, while still being able to focus on what's happening in the world around you and not be glued to a screen. I wish my life was different to that, but I am one of those folks that is a little bit too glued to the device. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to put my hand up and say, yes, that's me too. But I, I can put it, I'm not addicted to it. I can put it away, but I do love the technology and the ability to kind of quickly record a voice message to myself that, that is a quick reminder. Yeah. And that, I guess the AirPods are really good on that. All right. Well, you might have answered this already, but I'll give you the opportunity to encapsulate it again. What's the best way to keep a client on track? Um, well, we could say it's goals and deadlines, accountability, and 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 those things. Um, but I think it's different to that. I think those things need to exist. I think those are table stakes. Uh, I think it's to make sure they stay in love with the work, mm -hmm. and that there is enough enthusiasm towards the outcome, i.e., the it's worth it, that gets them to be able to go the distance. And getting a client to agree to part with money to achieve an outcome that is beneficial is not that hard. If there is work, though, between that decision and the outcome, it's very easy to lose people somewhere in that way. So keeping them inspired and enthused about the outcome that we went on to be able to do this is probably the most important thing about them going the distance. Because if it moves from being, this is a super fun idea that's going to change the game for us, to I've got to be in that meeting, I've got to complete that spreadsheet, I've got to respond to that uh, that that, that um, demand request, then that will add sluggishness to the process because it doesn't feel like fun anymore. Mm. It's, it's what can you do to keep it moving like fun? What can you do to remove friction? What can you do to insert positive energy to the experience for it to go the distance is probably more valuable than did you set adequate goals and deadlines and are you holding people to account? Yeah, that's. I love that. Um, keep it fun. Help them stay in love with it. And one of the things in life, Jürgen, I'm just sorry to cut across you. Yeah, that's I think right. One point is is the only two things anybody does in life is one is what they enjoy doing, and two is what they get checked on. Hmm. That's it. Everything falls into one of those two camps. And and sure, there are dozens of tools to check, but if you can turn something into something somebody enjoys doing, then you rarely have to enforce the checks. In that's right. Hmm. All right, great. Uh, and finally, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Go big on the little thing. Hmm. And whenever I ask anybody what makes them different, what they normally explain is something that makes them the same. You know, or certainly it's not what they do, it's how they do it that they believe is different, but the how they do it that they believe is different is the same explanation to how everybody else explains is how they do it, right? Everybody says they pride themselves on the service, they really care, and they're like, mm. nobody's writing on their website is that we offer terrible service and we don't give a damn about people. So um, is 
true differentiation comes on on finding a little thing that is you, you, and only you, and then going big on it. Hmm. Now, I give you a little example from my world here right now is I basically own the word exactly. Hmm. And have kept going and going and going with it. So yes, we have the three books that you've mentioned here today, but I also have you know five, six, seven other books that come from it. I have topics, titles, and descriptions around speeches, programs, courses, etc. that include the word exactly. I mean, I even have my own own whiskey. Um, <laughs> oh wow! Exactly what to drink. <laughs> is, there are hundreds and thousands of consultants who are white middle-aged articulate that have written a book that have many of the credentials that mine would exist with um but it's nice for people to say is he the exactly guy hmm. is a tiny piece of differentiation and you know a simple thing that you could do to go big just based on what i'm looking at right now is 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 Jürgen, is he the yellow headphones guy <laughs> yeah. you with me is 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 take a little thing and go big on it hmm. Because everything else is table stakes. And I do a lot of work with real estate agents too. And it's if you can bring your passion into your work, then all of a sudden you can differentiate. Like if you love gardening and you love roses and you're the real estate agent that loves roses, you're easier to be remembered than the really good real estate agent. Hmm. If you are the real estate agent that plays the saxophone, you're easier to be remembered. So sometimes differentiation is is the yes and. It's how do you take a thing that's pretty normal here and that's pretty normal here, but when you stick the two together, you create a combination of these things that is like, oh, that girl, that guy, etc. And it's kind of the trigger that that then brings up whatever else people associate with that person or with that real estate agent, for example. So then they remember all the the good service and. Sure. Whatever yeah. other things that, that they deliver. Thing, right? What's your one thing that you're like, I can own that. Hmm. Now everything else should be, you know, equally on par of, of, of everything else you're competing with. But I'm sure that if you want to differentiate, you've got to find the thing that differentiates you. And hmm. and it's probably razor sharp and it's tiny and then blow that thing up to an eleven. Right. Well great examples and um, great advice there. Thanks for getting us through the buzz round. Now, as I said, this has been really fabulous. Now, where can people find you? Um, do the things we spoke about earlier, buy some of your books, read some of your other uh, work, and um, maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared today. Hey, uh, no, thank you for asking that question. And, and philmjones.com is the website. From there, you can get direction towards your own preferred social media channels or learn more about my work. If you want to buy any of the books, then then every good bookstore should be able to help you regardless of where you are in the world. But we still do 95% of our book sales through Amazon in whatever country that may be. And if you want to join the conversation, two places where you'll, you'll find me more than anywhere else is either uh, Instagram, I'm Phil M. Jones UK, or if you search Phil M. Jones on LinkedIn, you'll find me there as well. And, and these are two places that I hang out as a, as a real human and that you can expect replies and expect to be able to continue the conversation with. Excellent. And we'll have links for that in the show notes. So do you have some parting advice for our listener today as we wrap it up? The worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you think. <laughs> That's my parting advice, is, mm. is, is do the work before the work so you can control the controllables in more of the critical conversations in your life. And what it allows you to be is more present in those moments if what you've done is you've built yourself a standard of excellence before you get into those moments. And almost every human being on the planet has copy-paste Word documents on their desktop they use for repeat conversations, Dropbox folders, or wherever they keep them. Um, you can have copy-paste conversational templates in your mind if you do the work ahead of time. That means that what you can do is then you can highly customize, you can highly tailor, you can highly evolve those templates in the moment because you did the work to build the template and learn the template in the first place. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of um, I was speaking with uh, the accidental accountant, the improviser. His name slipped my mind now. Um, I'll have to come back to his name. <laughs> he um, He talked about improvising as a skill where 
improvisers are actually highly rehearsed and it's very much like what you said there people have these different conversational elements that they have written somewhere in an email they've written it somewhere in a in a blog post or something and having those ready allows you then to um, it's almost like a lego building block so you've got all those lego building like. blocks in your kit and you build you a house anything. or a car or whatever it is that's appropriate Hmm. Or, a, or a chef with a pantry full of ingredients that, depending upon different circumstances, hmm. can reach into that pantry and make you a custom dish that is never a custom dish. All it is is a dish highly influenced from dishes that have been made in the past. Excellent. All right. And the final question, who else should I get on the show? You mentioned Stephen Shapiro earlier. I think, yeah, shoot for Stephen. Stephen hmm. would be great. I think some of his lessons around innovation uh, would be would be wonderful. Uh, and then a, a second person that I think would be particularly useful is a young lady by the name of Melanie Diesel. Um, Melanie Diesel is co-authoring a book with myself, actually. It's coming out mm. in, in the year. Um, and she has a mindset that more marketers should think like a journalist. And I think there is lessons in there for, for everybody in any walk of life to be able to get more focused on how you prove you are what you say you are as opposed to just say it. Um, yeah. and ways of things about being able to do that. And I think in, in a world where we're all looking to be more innovative, we have to back up our ideas mm. um, with the right kind of evidence so that people would buy them more so than just have great ideas. There's lots of great ideas. There's lots of innovation in the world, but, but packaging that and then packaging it in a way that people are prepared to be able to actually buy what it is that you're saying or selling is a completely different game. So, yeah, Stephen Shapiro, Melanie Diesel would be two people that I would highly recommend. Excellent. Well, we'll reach out to both Melanie and Stephen and see if we can get them on the show as well. So thanks again. Thanks again, Phil. Really appreciate it. Um, you spending time with us today and the conversation we've had. I um, wish you all the best for the future and let's stay in touch. Sounds wonderful. Thank you, Jürgen. I appreciate being here. I hope you enjoyed that engaging and, and really insightful conversation with Phil and took something away from his episode. There was so much gold in today's conversation. I really got value from the idea of asking rhetorical questions to inspire action and being really specific in those questions. So why don't you right now listening at home think about many of the critical conversations that you face in your world? Now, these might be points where you get friction back from the other person at a point of introducing your product, your service, your ideas, and that you face objection or resistance as to why they wouldn't move forward. That would be a critical conversation. Other critical conversations would be conversations you have on repeat. Could be inbound phone call response to a lead. It could be how you set up for a meeting. It could be the video you record on repeat. That would be a critical conversation. And the other critical conversations are the ones that you are having over the next seven days. They're already scheduled. They're in your diary. You're going to be having them. The worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. So do some work to think about your critical conversations and perhaps even think to yourself right now, what are the three most critical conversations with one in each of those areas that could have the biggest impact on your life if you could add efficacy to each one of those? Phil's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Phil M. Jones. That is P-H-I-L-M-J-O-N-E-S. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Phil M. Jones. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Phil, as well as links to his website, his social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation. So if you've listened to this part of the show, I've got a challenge for you. What I'd love you to do is one of two things. Is if you've loved this conversation, think it'd be useful to one other person, be brave enough to share this conversation with that one other person. Now, more importantly, if you've enjoyed this conversation, my guess is in the 505 other episodes that have existed of this show up until right now, there's at least one in there that is probably even more valuable than this one. So either pick your favorite number, or take a 30-second glance through the past episodes, and between now and next episode that I release, see if you can listen to one more, and then shoot me a note on Twitter, Instagram, etc. Pick one, 
about which episode you picked and why and what your biggest takeaway was. Phil suggested we have a conversation with author of Invisible Solutions, Stephen M. Shapiro, and author of the Content Fuel Framework, Melanie Desiel, on a future Innova Bus podcast episode. So Stephen and Melanie, keep an eye on your inboxes for an invitation from us to the Innova Buzz podcast, courtesy of Phil M. Jones. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode so that we can get to know you and why you listen. Also, it will help us make the podcast even better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz to pick your preferred platform. And you can follow the show by going to followthepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain into how we put together this show, go to innovabuzz.co forward slash flywheel, where you can access a free gift my team and I made for you, a short audio program that walks you through the entire InnovaBuzz flywheel. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jurgen Strauss from Innova Biz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating. <laughs>